0: We are not experts or therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and have interviewed hundreds of others who do as well. By sharing stories of lived experiences, we expose depression for the lying bully that it is. Hello, Bridget. Hi, Terry. Our primary focus in this podcast is to share the stories of fellow humans who live with depression and bipolar disorder, and their often co-occurring anxiety and suicidal thoughts.
1: But every now and then, we need to step back and look at the system in which those mental health challenges are diagnosed and treated, including when they're most effectively addressed, where care needs to be provided, and why some of the current societal beliefs and institutional care structures can actually cause harm.
0: Our guest for this episode is Victor Armstrong, the Director of the Division of Mental Health, Developmental Disabilities, and Substance Abuse for North Carolina's Department of Health and Human Services. Here now is Victor, who also joined us last week, giving his voice to depression.
1: Please listen to one of our favorite episodes from our archive this week. We begin by asking Victor what he thinks is least understood about depression.
2: I think the prevalence of depression in our society is grossly misunderstood. And I think the vulnerability of all of us to depression is also grossly misunderstood.
1: And those misunderstandings are not benign. They have real consequences because, as Victor puts it, people fear what they don't understand.
2: And so I think all of those things have culminated into us really trying to paint uh, people with mental health challenges as being other people. It's not something that impacts me. I think that's the reason that when we look statistically, um, you know, only about half the people who have a mental health diagnosis or a diagnosable mental health challenge get help. And, and in the black community, it's only about half the rate of, of white people. And there's a reason for that. I do think, however... That if we were to really look at health in general, we don't like to acknowledge when we have health challenges. You, you look at how long you know men will put off going to the doctor for anything, um, let alone when you add something to that that is um, going to be perceived as weak.
1: Victor says a lot of the ways we diagnose and treat mental health in the United States are outdated and don't take into account the nuances of race, culture ethnicity, or sexual orientation.
2: And so I think for that reason too, um, you, you, it's difficult for people sometimes to really buy into the process because if if I, for example, as a 50-something-year-old um, black man were experiencing severe depression and um, recognizing that only about 4% of psychologists are black and only about 2% of, of psychiatrists are black. How willing am I going to be to go into the office of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, 20-something-year-old female and sit on her couch and tell her, I don't feel like getting out of bed in the morning. I cry all the time and my sex drive is low. So I think there are a lot of challenges as to why why we don't have more acceptance of acknowledging mental health challenges and getting help. But I think there are a lot lot of different reasons across the spectrum as to why people don't.
1: Another reason, Victor says, is the perception that depression symptoms are somehow feminine.
2: And, uh, you know, men are much less likely to divulge that they're experiencing depression, just in part because of the symptoms, you know, the the tearfulness and, and, you know, either sleeping too much or not sleeping enough and, you know, just some of the things that come along with it.
1: And that, he says, frequently leads to underdiagnosis and other issues
2: because men will then self-medicate, um, and then it becomes more an issue of alcoholism or drug issue, where men will sometimes lash out in violence because they, they lack the self-control and lack sometimes the, the, the verbiage and the language to express what they're feeling other than in terms of um, anger.
1: Victor says lashing out and other behaviors during mental health emergencies lead to the criminalization of mental illness.
2: And when we continue to see, uh, you know, on any given day, there are 400,000 men and women in jails and prisons in this country who do have a diagnosable mental illness. And as long as we keep incarcerating folks um, who, who, again, had infractions because of those challenges, and then we don't give them proper treatment when they're incarcerated, and then we don't have proper resources for them upon reentry after incarceration. That, to me, is discrimination.
1: We want to focus for a few minutes on Victor's word choice of mental health emergency, in part because he feels passionately about it, and in part because he makes a distinction that we think needs to be noted.
2: It just strikes me that when someone is experiencing a medical emergency, we call it that. We call it an emergency. When someone is experiencing a mental health emergency, we call it mental health crisis and, and crisis response. And... You know, I think the reason for that is that we don't have the resources to meet their needs at the time they need them. So it's not so much that the person is in crisis, it is the system that's in crisis.
1: By way of illustration, Victor shares about his recent medical emergency, which received a medical response.
2: I had a freak accident a few months back and ended up cutting my arm, and I had to go to um, an urgent care. And it was an emergency to me because I was bleeding and I couldn't stitch my own triceps. So, but when I walked in there, you know, they calmly had me, you know, sit. They got me set up. And within an hour, I was stitched up and out. It was routine to them because they had a process and they had resources to address it. We don't have that for people experiencing mental health emergencies, so we call it crisis.
1: And in a crisis, a common response is to dial 911
2: we have a, a, a situation now where uh, particularly black males disproportionately have bad outcomes when um, interacting with law enforcement and in the best of circumstances. And then if our response to someone having a mental health emergency is a law enforcement response and you're responding in a situation with someone who would already um, disproportionately have a bad outcome and then you add to that um, that this this person's mental health emergency may cause them to be irrational, illogical, and uh, seem even more dangerous. That's, again, the perfect recipe for poor outcomes. So I think we've got a lot to do um, in that space of how we respond to folks that are, that are having mental health challenges in general.
1: Victor says states like his have very robust crisis intervention and officer training programs.
2: You know, I think that was a a very important step. The next step, I think, is to create a system where we have mental health professionals responding to mental health emergencies. Law enforcement is a support and a resource, uh, but should not be our primary response to someone experiencing a mental health crisis.
1: Think about it. There's really no other health emergency for which our instinct is to call the police someone's had an accident or a heart attack, the focus is entirely on getting them the care they need. And we're probably going to call an ambulance. But if someone seems out of control and we're scared, well?
2: Our response responses to someone having a mental health crisis is really not designed to protect and nurture the person having the crisis. It's designed to protect the rest of us from the person having the crisis. And that in
1: itself is fundamentally wrong. Victor believes our response to suicide is also fundamentally wrong.
2: You know, even, even when we think about, um, you know, the fact that so many people who died by suicide um, had, a, had a diagnosis of depression. But when a person dies by suicide, historically, we don't, we don't get into the depression. You know, if, if a man dies by suicide, you know, historically, the, the conversation is how selfish that was. You know how selfish was it to to take your life and and leave your family members behind to have to deal with it, or that it, it was a coward's way out. And we don't understand how devastating depression can actually be when you, you know, when someone describes. And I can only I can only share what I have heard and read because I've not experienced it. But um, but to imagine someone feeling like you're in such a deep dark place that you would rather. Uh, you just want your pain to stop. But uh, the only way that you can perceive that happening is to end your life. That's, that's a, a very difficult thing for any of us to fathom, which probably also contributes to our you know, un- inability or unwillingness to understand it because we just cannot wrap our heads around being in that dark of a place.
1: I wonder sometimes if there's a fear of getting too close to it, because if it's as common as we know, and that probably means it's more common, and all of a sudden you hear that, it's, you know, I can watch a horror movie that has to do with situations I will never be in. I have a real hard time with horror movies that have to do with a situation I might be in. So I wonder if there's a little bit of just fear of getting a little too close to the stove.
2: Yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean, I, I, because I, it's funny uh, to mention horror movies because I was talking with uh, someone recently and we were talking about horror movies and they could do any kind of slasher movie. They could do anything other than kind of paranormal, uh, demonic kind of stuff. Uh, but the more we talked, it was because they just had this fear that well you know what if it's true what if it's real you know i I could see that happening so I think there's there's a lot of truth in what you're saying is that when you know when people do see themselves as uh being potentially closer to that than they want to acknowledge there's there's less uh, reason to talk about it
1: which Victor says is another reason twenty four seven crisis lines are so valuable
2: that's one of the reasons too I think that having um having the ability to have uh, like the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, or you know, other care lines that people can call in um, and and talk to someone um, anonymously, or you know, at least uh, not having to do it face to face, and they can do it in the moment. I think those things are helpful uh, because then if you if you start to have concerns or fears or questions, there's something about picking up the phone and talking to someone who you don't think is going to judge you because they don't know you and begin to talk through some of those things.
1: We strongly encourage everyone listening to program local or national crisis line numbers into your phone. It is so much harder in an emergency situation to calmly search for the resource, and you really never know when you might want or need to talk to someone. Also, please note that you do not need to be suicidal to call. You define what a crisis is for you at any given time. In the U.S., the national number is 800-273-8255 or 800-273-TALK, or you can text TALK to 741-741. But suicide prevention isn't only crisis lines and hospital visits.
2: Suicide itself is not the disease. It's not a disease. It is the worst possible outcome of the culmination of a lot of very complex issues, oftentimes including depression, But suicide prevention is about getting upstream. It's about reaching a person before they go into a suicidal crisis. Um, And so all the things that we can do to normalize the conversation, to make resources available in communities where people live and where people can reach them, have access to them, making it affordable, uh, all of those things are suicide prevention.
1: Victor says one of the lessons learned in working in state government during the pandemic is the need to partner differently.
2: But, you know, when I look at, um, you know, the Latinx community or the black community, um, I know for me growing up, the, the, the church was always the gateway to the black community. So I think part of what we have to do is figure out not just how do we integrate behavioral health into primary care and primary care to behavioral health, but how do we do a better job of integrating behavioral health into the church, into the YMCA's, into the community centers? Um, I think we also have to think about how do we build a workforce that can speak to the unique needs of different populations.
1: One of the most cost and time efficient ways to begin addressing those unique needs is to make better use of peer support specialists, those of us who can speak from experience about living with a condition or situation.
2: We can grow a workforce of peers much faster than we can grow a workforce of psychiatrists. I look here in North Carolina, we've got something like um, 4,000 certified peer specialists and about 1,500 that are gainfully employed. So one of the things that we've done in trying to even speak to the the challenges with the pandemic, particularly for folks living with mental health challenges, is is look at how do we utilize those peer resources. Um, And I also think the more that you do that, the more people can see and talk to people who've lived it, who've been there, uh, that does help to normalize it. And, and I think that's one of the things that we have to look at and, and do differently is, um, is utilize those folks with lived experience.
1: That's the idea behind this podcast, actually. Not taking anything away from professionals, but there is power in hearing from people who have been there, people who can talk about the experience of living with a mental health condition from a place of knowing. Victor knows the value of connecting with our worth. And leaves us with this.
2: The the message I always like to leave with people, though, is no matter who you are, no matter what your challenges are, you matter. Your life matters. Your pain matters. And no matter how bad it gets, just try everything in your power to be here tomorrow.
0: Boy, that word fear came up a lot, didn't it? We fear what we don't understand in ourselves as well as in others.
1: True that. Yeah, I thought his, you know, acknowledgement that the vulnerability of all of us to having depression, to being depressed is something that's not understood. And again, I think that the pandemic is bringing people closer to that understanding and reality because all of mental health is a spectrum and we slide around on it. And, you know, there have to be a lot of people who before thought they were not on it, um, let alone in any risk of getting to the lower end of where you'd want to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mental health challenges are so complex that the police, you know, this is a whole movement we all know, right? This is like really up right now. Yep. And what are they trained in versus how do you have a mental health specialist in the car right there? Or I don't know if peer specialists are part of that or not, but I feel in Washington state at least that there's a real movement afoot to see the glaring gap between law enforcement and mental health support. And I love that it's being addressed.
1: Mm -hmm. And we're not criticizing law enforcement in any way. It's just that are they mental health specialists? And the answer, you know, is no and in the past they they may not have even been properly trained it seems clear that many were not to be able to handle a mental health emergency so yeah it's a really good thing that it's finally happening
0: yeah it kind of reminds me of that statistic that i hear all the time that like in in medical school they get 6 hours of nutrition you know i mean <sighs> it's just not enough no it is just not enough and they can't enough. know it all
1: Right. And I do like Victor's final message, and I thank you for having made a graphic with it so that anybody who needs to read that can be reminded that no matter who you are, no matter what your challenges are, you matter. Your life matters. Your pain matters. And that no matter how bad it gets, try to be here tomorrow.
0: And I think it's also really empowering to think about turning like over time turning that pain around and inside out and be able to focus it on ourselves with compassion and understanding and as well as supporting others just becoming you know a better person through our pain we truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding helps you better articulate your experience of depression or better understand how to support someone else's.
1: We invite you to join us for daily posts on the Giving Voice to Depression Facebook page and on Twitter and Instagram at Voice Depression. It is a comfort to be among fellow travelers on depression's dark road.
0: And remember, if you're struggling, speak up. If someone else is, listen up.